0: Chapter 11 of The Book of Wonder by Lord Dunsany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. How one came, as was foretold, to the city of Never. The child that played about the terraces and gardens in sight of the Surrey Hills never knew that it was he that should come to the ultimate city, never knew that he should see the underpits, the barbicans and the holy minarets of the mightiest city known. I think of him now as a child with a little red watering can going about the gardens on a summer's day that lit the warm south country. His imagination delighted with all tales of quite little adventures, and all the while there was reserved for him that feat at which men wonder. Looking in other directions, away from the Surrey Hills, through all his infancy, he saw that precipice that, wall above wall and mountain above mountain, stands at the edge of the world. And in perpetual twilight, alone with the moon and the sun, holds up the inconceivable city of never. To tread its streets, he was destined, prophecy knew it. He had the magic halter, And a worn old rope it was, an old wayfaring woman had given it to him. It had the power to hold any animal whose race had never known captivity, such as the unicorn, the hippogriff, pegasus, dragons and wyverns. But with a lion, giraffe, camel or horse, it was useless. How often we have seen that city of never, that marvel of the nation's, not when it is night in the world, and we can see no further than the stars, not when the sun is shining where we dwell, dazzling our eyes, but when the sun has set on some stormy days, all at once repentant at evening, and those glittering cliffs reveal themselves, which we almost take to be clouds, and it is twilight with us as it is for ever with them. Then on their gleaming summits we see those golden domes that overpeer the edges of the world and seem to dance with dignity and calm in that gentle light of evening that is wonder's native haunt. Then does the city of Never, unvisited and afar, look long at her sister, the world. It had been prophesied that he should come there. They knew it when the pebbles were being made, and before the isles of coral were given unto the sea, and thus the prophecy came into fulfilment and passed into history, and so at length to oblivion, out of which I drag it as it goes floating by, into which I shall one day tumble. The hippogriffs dance before dawn in the upper air, long before sunrise flashes upon our lawns, They go to glitter in light that has not yet come to the world. And as the dawn works up from the ragged hills, and the stars feel it, they go slanting earthwards till sunlight touches the tops of the tallest trees, and the hippogriffs alight with a rattle of quills, and fold their wings and gallop and gamble away till they come to some prosperous, wealthy, detestable town and they leap at once from the fields and soar away from the sight of it, pursued by the horrible smoke of it, until they come again to the pure blue air. He whom prophecy had named from of old to come to the city of Never, went down one midnight with his magic halter, to a lakeside where the hippogriffs alighted at dawn, for the turf was soft there, and they could gallop far before they came to a town and there he waited, hidden near their hoof marks. And the stars paled a little and grew indistinct, but there was no other sign as yet of the dawn, when there appeared, far up in the deeps of the night, two little saffron specks, then four and five. It was the hippogriffs dancing and twirling around in the sun. Another flock joined them. There were twelve of them now, They danced there, flashing their colours back to the sun. They descended in wide curves slowly, trees down on earth revealed against the sky, jet black, each delicate twig. A star disappeared from a cluster, now another, and dawn came on like music, like a new song. Ducks shot by to the lake from still dark fields of corn, far voices uttered, A colour grew upon water, and still the hippogriffs gloried in the light, revelling up in the sky. But when pigeons stirred on the branches, and the first small bird was abroad, and little coots from the rushes ventured to peer about, then there came down on a sudden with a thunder of feathers the hippogriffs, and, as they landed from their celestial heights, all bathed with the day's first sunlight, the man whose destiny it was, as from old, to come to the city of never, sprang up and caught the last with the magic halter. The man whose destiny it was, as from of old, to come to the city of never, sprang up and caught the last with the magic halter. It plunged, but could not escape it. For the hippogriffs are of the uncaptured races, and magic has power over the magical. So the man mounted it, and it soared again for the heights whence it had come, as a wounded beast goes home. But when they came to the heights, that venturous rider saw huge and fair to the left of him, the destined city of Never, and he beheld the towers of Lel and Lek, Nerib and Akathuma, and the cliffs of Tolden Arbour are glistening in the twilight like an alabaster statue of the evening. Towards them he wrenched the halter. Towards Tolden Arbor and the underpits, the wings of the hippogriff roared as the halter turned him. Of the underpits, who shall tell? Their mystery is secret. It is held by some that they are the sources of night, and that darkness pours from them at evening upon the world while others hint that knowledge of these might undo our civilization. There watched him ceaselessly from the underpits, those eyes whose duty it is, from further within and deeper. The bats that dwell there arose when they saw the surprise in the eyes. The sentinels on the bulwarks beheld that stream of bats and lifted up their spears as it were for war. Nevertheless, when they perceived that that war for which they watched was not now come upon them, they lowered their spears and suffered him to enter. And he passed, whirring through the earthward gateway. Even so he came, as foretold, to the city of Never, perched upon Tolden Arbour, and saw late twilight on those pinnacles that know no other light, All the domes were of copper, but the spires on their summits were gold. Little steps of onyx ran all this way and that, with cobbled agates were its streets a-glory. Through small square panes of rose quartz the citizens looked from their houses. To them, as they looked abroad, the world far off seemed happy. Clad though that city was, in one robe always, in twilight, yet was its beauty worthy of even so lovely a wonder city and twilight were both peerless but for each other built of a stone unknown in the world we tread were its bastions quarried we know not where but called by the gnomes abix it so flashed back to the twilight its glories colour for colour that none can say of them where their boundary is and which the eternal twilight, and which the city of never. They are the twin-born children, the fairest daughters of wonder. Time had been there, but not to work destruction. He had turned to a fair, pale green the domes that were made of copper. The rest he had left untouched. Even he, the destroyer of cities, by what bribe I know not, averted nevertheless they often wept in never for change and passing away mourning catastrophes in other worlds and they built temples sometimes to ruin stars that had fallen flaming down from the milky way giving them worship still when by us long since forgotten other temples they have who knows to what divinities and he that was destined alone of men to come to the city of Never was well content to behold it, as he trotted down its agate street, with the wings of his hippogriff furled, seeing at either side of him marvel on marvel, of which even China is ignorant. Then, as he neared the city's further rampart, by which no inhabitants stirred, and looked in a direction to which no houses faced, With any rose-pink windows, he suddenly saw, far off, dwarfing the mountains an even greater city. Whether that city was built upon the twilight, or whether it rose from the coasts of some other world, he did not know. He saw it dominate the city of never, and strove to reach it. But at this unmeasured home of unknown colossi, the hippogriff shied frantically, and neither the magic halter nor anything that he did could make the monster face it. At last, from the city of Never's lonely outskirts, where no inhabitants walked, the rider turned slowly earthward. He knew now why all the windows faced this way. The denizens of the twilight gazed at the world and not at a greater than them. Then, from the last step of the earthward stairway, That lead past the underpits and down the glittering face of the Tolden Arbor, down from the overshadowed glories of the gold-tipped city of never and out of perpetual twilight, swooped the man on his winged monster. The wind that slept at the time leapt up like a dog at their onrush. It uttered a cry and ran past them. Down on the world it was morning, Night was roaming away with his cloak trailed behind him. White mists turned over and over as he went. The orb was grey, but it glittered. Lights blinked surprisingly in early windows. Forth over wet, dim fields went cows from their houses. Even in this hour touched the fields again, the feet of the hippogriff. And the moment that the man dismounted and took off his magic halter, the hippogriff flew slanting away with a whirr, going back to some airy dancing place of his people. And he that surmounted glittering Tolden an and came alone of men to the city of Never, has his name and his fame among nations. But he and the people of that twilight city well know two things, unguessed by other men, that there is another city fairer than theirs, and he a deed unaccomplished. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 of The Book of Wonder by Lord Dunsany This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Coronation of Mr. Thomas Shap. It was the occupation of Mr. Thomas Shap to persuade customers that the goods were genuine and of an excellent quality, and that as regards the price, their unspoken will was consulted. And in order to carry on this occupation, he went by train very early every morning, some few miles nearer to the city, from the suburb in which he slept. This was the use to which he put his life. From the moment when he first perceived not as one reads a thing in a book, but as truths are revealed to one's instinct, the very beastliness of his occupation, and of the house that he slept in, its shape, make and pretensions, and even of the clothes that he wore. From that moment he withdrew his dreams from it, his fancies, his ambitions, everything in fact except that ponderable Mr. Shack that dressed in a frock coat, bought tickets and handled money and could in turn be handled by the statistician. The priest's share in Mr. Shap, the share of the poet, never caught the early train to the city at all. He used to take little flights of fancy at first, dwelt all day in his dreamy way on fields and rivers, lying in the sunlight where it strikes the world more brilliantly further south. And then he began to imagine butterflies there, after that, silken people in the temples they built to their gods. They noticed that he was silent and even absent at times, but they found no fault with his behavior with customers, to whom he remained as plausible as of old. So he dreamed for a year, and his fancy gained strength as he dreamed. He still read half-penny papers in the train, still discussed the passing day's ephemeral topic, still voted at elections, though he no longer did these things with the whole chap. His soul was no longer in them. He had had a pleasant year. His imagination was all new to him still, and it had often discovered beautiful things away where it went, southeast at the edge of the twilight and he had a matter-of-fact and logical mind, so that he often said, Why should I pay my tuppence at the electric theatre when I can see all sorts of things quite easily without? Whatever he did was logical before anything else, and those that knew him always spoke of Shap as a sound, sane, level-headed man. On far the most important day of his life, he went as usual to town by the early train to sell plausible articles to customers, while the spiritual Shap roamed off to fanciful lands. As he walked from the station, dreamy but wide awake, it suddenly struck him that the real Shap was not the one walking to business in black and ugly clothes, but he who roamed along a jungle's edge near the ramparts of an old and eastern city, that rose up sheer from the sand, and against which the desert lapped with one eternal wave. He used to fancy the name of that city was Lakar. After all, the fancy is as real as the body, he said with perfect logic. It was a dangerous theory. For that other life that he led, he realized, as in business, the importance and value of method. He did not let his fancy roam too far until it perfectly knew its first surroundings. Particularly, he avoided the jungle. He was not afraid to meet a tiger there. After all, it was not real. But stranger things might crouch there. Slowly, he built up Lakar, rampart by rampart, towers for archers, gateway of brass and all. And then one day he argued, and quite rightly, that all the silk-clad people in its streets, their camels, their wares that came from Inkustan, the city itself, were all the things of his will. And then he made himself king. He smiled after that when people did not raise their hats to him in the street as he walked from the station to business but he was sufficiently practical to recognize that it was better not to talk of this to those that only knew him as Mr. Shap. Now that he was king in the city of Lakar and in all the desert that lay to the east and north, he sent his fancy to wander further afield. He took the regiments of his camel guards and went jingling out of Lakar with little silver bells under the camel's chins, and came to other cities far off on the yellow sand, with clear white walls and towers, uplifting themselves in the sun. Through their gates he passed with his three silken regiments, the light blue regiment of the camel guards being upon his right, and the green regiment riding at his left, the lilac regiment going on before. When he had gone through the streets of any city and observed the ways of its people, and had seen the way that the sunlight struck its towers, he would proclaim himself king there, and then ride on in fancy. So he passed, from city to city, and from land to land, clear-sighted though Mr. Shap was. I think he overlooked the lust of aggrandizement, to which kings have so often been victims, and so it was, that when the first few cities had opened their gleaming gates, and he saw people's prostrate before his camel, and spearmen cheering along countless balconies, and priests come out to do him reverence, he that had never had even the lowliest authority in the familiar world became unwisely insatiate. He let his fancy ride at inordinate speed. He forsook method. Scarce was he king of a land, but he yearned to extend his borders. So he journeyed deeper and deeper into the wholly unknown. The concentration that he gave to this inordinate progress through countries of which history is ignorant and cities so fantastic in their bulwarks that, though their inhabitants were human, yet the foe that they feared seemed something less or more. The amazement with which he beheld gates and towers, unknown even to art, and furtive people thronging intricate ways to acclaim him as their sovereign, all these things began to affect his capacity for business. He knew as well as any that his fancy could not rule these beautiful lands unless that other chap, however unimportant, were well sheltered and fed. And shelter and food meant money, and money, business. His was more like the mistake of some gambler with cunning schemes who overlooks human greed. One day his fancy, riding in the morning, came to a city gorgeous as the sunrise, in whose opalescent wall were gates of gold, so huge that a river poured between the bars, floating in when the gates were opened, large galleons under sail. Thence there came dancing out a company with instruments and made a melody all around the wall. That morning Mr. Shap, the bodily Shap in London, forgot the train to town. Until a year ago he had never imagined at all. It is not to be wondered at that all these things now newly seen by his fancy should play tricks at first with the memory of even so sane a man. He gave up reading the papers altogether. He lost all interest in politics. He cared less and less for things that were going on around him. This unfortunate missing of the morning train even occurred again, and the firm spoke to him severely about it. But he had his consolation. Were not Arathrian and Argon Zerith and all the level coasts of Ura his, and even as the firm found fault with him, his fancy watched the Yaks on weary journeys, slow specks against the snowfields bringing tribute, and saw the green eyes of the mountain men who had looked at him strangely in the city of Nith when he had entered it by the desert door, yet his logic did not forsake him. He knew well that his strange subjects did not exist, but he was prouder of having created them with his brain than merely of ruling them only. Thus, in his pride, he felt himself something more great than a king. He did not dare to think what. He went into the temple of the city of Zora and stood some time there alone. All the priests kneeled to him when he came away. He cared less and less for the things we care about, for the affairs of Shap, the businessman in London. He began to despise the man with royal contempt. One day when he sat in Soula, the city of the Thuls, throned on one amethyst, he decided, and it was proclaimed on the moment by silver trumpets all along the land that he would be crowned as king over all the lands of wonder. By that old temple where the thuls were worshipped year in, year out, for over a thousand years, they pitched pavilions in the open air. The trees that blew there threw out radiant scents unknown in any countries that know the map. The stars blazed fiercely for that famous occasion. A fountain hurled up, clattering, ceaselessly into the air armfuls on armfuls of diamonds. A deep hush waited for the golden trumpets. The holy coronation night was come. At the top of those old worn steps, going down we know not whither, stood the king in the emerald and amethyst cloak, the ancient garb of the thulls. Beside him lay that sphinx that for the last few weeks had advised him in his affairs. Slowly, with music when the trumpets sounded, came up towards him from, we know not where, 120 archbishops, 20 angels and two archangels with that terrific crown, the Diadem of the thuls. They knew as they came up to him that promotion awaited them all because of this night's work. Silent, majestic, the king awaited them. The doctors downstairs were sitting over their supper. The warders softly slipped from room to room. And when in that cosy dormitory of Hanwell they saw the king still standing erect and royal, his face resolute, they came up to him and addressed him. Go to bed, they said, pretty bed. So he lay down and soon was fast asleep. The great day was over. End of Chapter Twelve. Chapter Thirteen of the Book of Wonder by Lord Dunsany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chubu and Shemish. It was the custom on Tuesdays in the temple of Chubu for the priests to enter at evening and chant. There is none but Chubu, and all the people rejoiced and cried out. There is none but Chubu. And honey was offered to Chubu and maize and fat, thus was he magnified. Chubu was an idol of some antiquity, as may be seen from the colour of the wood. He had been carved out of mahogany, and after he was carved he had been polished. Then they had set him up on the diorite pedestal, with the brazier in front of it for burning spices and the flat gold plates for fat thus they worshipped chubu he must have been there for over a hundred years when one day the priests came in with another idol into the temple of chubu and set it up on a pedestal near chubu's and sang there is also shemish and all the people rejoiced and cried out there is also shemish shemish was palpably a modern idol and although the wood was stained with a dark red dye You could see that he had only just been carved, and honey was offered to Shemish as well as Chubu, and also maize and fat. The fury of Chubu knew no time limit. He was furious all that night, and the next day he was furious still. The situation called for immediate miracles. To devastate the city with a pestilence and kill all his priests, was scarcely within his power. Therefore, he wisely concentrated such divine powers as he had in commanding a little earthquake. Thus, thought Chubu, will I reassert myself as the only god and men shall spit upon Sheemish. Chubu willed it and willed it and still no earthquake came when suddenly he was aware that the hated Shemish was daring to attempt a miracle too. He ceased to busy himself about the earthquake and listened, or shall I say felt, for what Shemish was thinking. For gods are aware of what passes in the mind by a sense that is other than any of our five. Shemish was trying to make an earthquake too, The new god's motive was probably to assert himself. I doubt if Chubu understood or cared for his motive. It was sufficient for an idol already aflame with jealousy that his detestable rival was on the verge of a miracle. All the power of Chubu veered round at once and set dead against an earthquake, even a little one. It was thus in the temple of Chubu for some time, and then... No earthquake came. To be a god and to fail to achieve a miracle is a despairing sensation. It is as though among men one should determine upon a hearty sneeze and as though no sneeze should come. It is as though one should try to swim in heavy boots or remember a name that is utterly forgotten. All these pains were sheemishs, And upon Tuesday the priest came in and the people and they did worship chubu and offered fat to him saying o chubu who made everything and then the priests sang there is also shemish and chubu was put to shame and spake not for three days now there were holy birds in the temple of chubu and when the third day was come and the night thereof it was as it were revealed to the mind of chubu that there was dirt upon the head of Shemish. And Chubu spake unto Shemish, as speak the gods, moving no lips, nor yet disturbing the silence, saying, There is dirt upon thy head, O Shemish. All night long he muttered again and again, There is dirt upon Shemish's head. And when it was dawn and voices were heard far off, Chubu became exultant with earth's awakening things and cried out till the sun was high. Dirt, dirt, dirt upon the head of Shemish. And at noon he said, So Shemish would be a god. Thus was Shemish confounded. And with Tuesday one came and washed his head with rose water and he was worshipped again when they sang There is also Shemish, and yet was Chubu content, for he said, The head of Shemish has been defiled, and again, His head was defiled, it is enough. And one evening, lo, there was dirt on the head of Chubu also, And the thing was perceived of Shemish. It is not with the gods as it is with men, We are angry one with another and turn from our anger again, but the wrath of the gods is enduring. Chubu remembered and Shemish did not forget. They spake as we do not speak, in silence, yet heard of each other, nor were their thoughts as our thoughts. We should not judge them merely by human standards. All night long they spake and all night said these words only, Dirty Chubu, dirty Shemish, dirty Chubu, dirty Shemish, all night long. Their wrath had not tired at dawn, and neither had wearied of his accusation. And gradually, Chubu came to realise that he was nothing more than the equal of Shemish. All gods are jealous, but this equality with the upstart Shemish a thing of painted wood a hundred years newer than Chubu, and this worship given to Shemish in Chubu's own temple were particularly bitter. Chubu was jealous, even for a god, and when Tuesday came again, the third day of Shemish's worship, Chubu could bear it no longer. He felt that his anger must be revealed at all costs, and he returned with all the vehemence of his will to achieving a little earthquake. The worshippers had just gone from his temple when Chubu settled his will to attain this miracle. Now and then his meditations were disturbed by that now familiar dictum, Dirty Chubu. But Chubu willed ferociously, not even stopping to say what he longed to say, and had already said nine hundred times and presently even these interruptions ceased they ceased because shemish had returned to a project that he had never definitely abandoned the desire to assert himself and exalt himself over chubu by performing a miracle and the district being volcanic he had chosen a little earthquake as the miracle most easily accomplished by a small god Now an earthquake that is commanded by two gods has double the chance of fulfillment than when it is willed by one, and an incalculably greater chance than when two gods are pulling different ways, as, to take the case of older and greater gods, when the sun and the moon pull in the same direction, we have the biggest tides. Chubu knew nothing of the theory of tides and was too much occupied in his miracle to notice what Shemish was doing. And suddenly, the miracle was an accomplished thing. It was a very local earthquake, for there are other gods than Chubu or even Shemish, and it was only a little one as the gods had willed. But it loosened some monoliths in a colonnade that supported one side of the temple. "'and the whole of one wall fell in. "'And the low huts of the people of that city "'were shaken a little, "'and some of their doors were jammed "'so that they would not open. "'It was enough, "'and for a moment it seemed that it was all. "'Neither Chubu nor Shemish "'commanded that there should be more, "'but they had set in motion an old law, "'older than Chubu, "'the law of gravity,' that that colonnade had held back for a hundred years and the temple of Chubu quivered and then stood still, swayed once and was overthrown on the heads of Chubu and Shemish. No one rebuilt it, for nobody dared to near such terrible gods. Some said that Chubu wrought the miracle, but some said Shemish and thereof schism was born the weakly amiable alarmed by the bitterness of rival sects sought compromise and said that both had wrought it but no one guessed the truth that the thing was done in rivalry and a saying arose and both sects held this belief in common those who toucheth chubu shall die or whoso looketh upon shemish that is how chubu came into my possession when I travelled once beyond the hills of Ting. I found him in the fallen temple of Chubu, with his hands and toes sticking up out of the rubbish, lying upon his back, and in that attitude, just as I found him, I keep him to this day on my mantelpiece, as he is less liable to be upset that way. Shemish was broken, so I left him where he was, And there is something so helpless about Chubu with his fat hands stuck up in the air that sometimes I am moved out of compassion to bow down to him and pray, saying, O Chubu, thou that made everything, help thy servant. Chubu cannot do much, though once I am sure that at a game of bridge he sent me the ace of trumps, after I had not held a card worth having for the whole of the evening. And chance alone could have done as much as that for me. But I do not tell this to Chubu. End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 of The Book of Wonder by Lord Dunsany This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Wonderful Window the old man in the oriental looking robe was being moved on by the police, and it was this that attracted to him and the parcel under his arm the attention of Mr. Sladden, whose livelihood was earned in the emporium of Messrs. Mergin and Chater, that is to say, in their establishment. Mr. Sladden had the reputation of being the silliest young man in business, a touch of romance a mere suggestion of it would send his eyes gazing away as though the walls of the emporium were of gossamer and London itself a myth, instead of attending to customers. Merely the fact that the dirty piece of paper that wrapped the old man's parcel was covered with Arabic writing was enough to give Mr. Sladden the idea of romance, and he followed until the little crowd fell off and the stranger stopped by the curb and unwrapped his parcel and prepared to sell the thing that was inside it. It was a little window in old wood with small panes set in lead. It was not much more than a foot in breadth and was under two feet long. Mr. Sladden had never before seen a window sold in the street, so he asked the price of it. "'It's price!' Is all you possess, said the old man. Where did you get it, said Mr. Sladden. for it was a strange window. I gave all that I possessed for it in the streets of Baghdad. Did you possess much, said Mr. Sladden. I had all that I wanted, he said, except this window. It must be a good window, said the young man. It is a magical window, said the old one. I have only ten shillings on me, but I have fifteen and six at home. The old man thought for a while. Then twenty-five and sixpence is the price of the window, he said. It was only when the bargain was completed and the ten shillings paid and the strange old man was coming for his fifteen and six and to fit the magical window into his only room, that it occurred to Mr. Sladden's mind that he did not want a window. And then they were at the door of the house in which he rented a room, and it seemed too late to explain. The stranger demanded privacy when he fitted up the window, so Mr. Sladden remained outside the door at the top of a little flight of creaky stairs. He heard no sound of hammering. And presently, the strange old man came out with his faded yellow robe and his great beard and his eyes on far-off places. It is finished, he said, and he and the young man parted. And whether he remained a spot of colour and anachronism in London, or whether he ever came again to Baghdad, and what dark hands kept on the circulation of his twenty-five and six. "'Mr. Sladden never knew. "'Mr. Sladdon entered the bare-boarded room in which he slept, "'and spent all his indoor hours between closing time "'and the hour at which Messrs. Mergin and Chater commenced. "'To the penates of so dingy a room, "'his neat frock coat must have been a continual wonder. "'Mr. Sladden took it off and folded it carefully, "'and there was the old man's window, Rather high up in the wall. There had been no window in that wall hitherto, nor any ornament at all, but a small cupboard. So when Mr. Sladden had put his frock coat safely away, he glanced through his new window. It was where his cupboard had been in which he kept his tea things. They were all standing on the table now. When Mr. Sladden glanced through his new window, it was late in a summer's evening. The butterflies some while ago would have closed their wings, though the bat would scarcely yet be drifting abroad. But this was in London. The shops were shut and street lamps not yet lighted. Mr. Sladden rubbed his eyes, then rubbed the window, and still he saw a sky of blazing blue. And far, far down beneath him, so that no sound came up from it or smoke of chimneys. A medieval city set with towers, brown roofs and cobbled streets, and then white walls and buttresses, and beyond them bright green fields and tiny streams. On the towers archers lolled, and along the walls were pikemen, and now and then a wagon went down some old-world street "'and lumbered through the gateway and out to the country. "'And now and then a wagon drew up to the city from the mist "'that was rolling with evening over the fields. "'Sometimes folks put their heads out of lattice windows. "'Sometimes some idle troubadour seemed to sing, "'and nobody hurried or troubled about anything. "'Airy and dizzy though the distance was, "'for Mr. Sladden seemed higher above the city than any cathedral gargoyle yet one clear detail he obtained as a clue. The banners, floating from every tower over the idle archers, had little golden dragons all over a pure white field. He heard motorbuses roar by his other window. He heard the newsboys howling. Mr. Sladden grew dreamier than ever after that on the premises in the establishment of Messrs. Mergin and Chater. But in one matter he was wise and wakeful. He made continuous and careful inquiries about the golden dragons on a white flag and talked to no one of his wonderful window. He came to know the flags of every king in Europe. He even dabbled in history. He made inquiries at shops that understood heraldry, but nowhere could he learn any trace of little dragons or on a field argent. And when it seemed that for him alone those dragons had fluttered, he came to love them as an exile in some desert might love the lilies of his home, or as a sick man might love swallows when he cannot easily live to another spring. As soon as Messrs. Mergen and Chater closed, Mr. Sladden used to go back to his dingy room and gaze through the wonderful window until it grew dark in the city and the guard would go with a lantern round the ramparts, and the night came up like velvet, full of strange stars. Another clue he tried to obtain one night by jotting down the shapes of the constellations, but this led him no further, for they were unlike any that shone upon either hemisphere. Each day, as soon as he woke, he went first to the wonderful window, and there was the city diminutive in the distance all shining in the morning and the golden dragons dancing in the sun and the archers stretching themselves or swinging their arms on the tops of the windy towers the window would not open so that he never heard the songs that the troubadours sang down there beneath the gilded balconies he did not even hear the belfry's chimes though he saw the jackdaws routed every hour from their homes. And the first thing that he always did was to cast his eye round all the little towers that rose up from the ramparts to see that the little golden dragons were flying there on their flags. And when he saw them flaunting themselves on white folds from every tower against the marvellous deep blue of the sky, he dressed contentedly and taking one last look, went off to his work with a glory in his mind. It would have been difficult for the customers of Messrs of Mergen and Chater to guess the precise ambition of Mr. Sladden as he walked before them in his neat frock coat. It was that he might be a man-at-arms, or an archer, in order to fight for the little golden dragons that flew on a white flag for the unknown king in an inaccessible city. At first, Mr. Sladden used to walk round and round the mean street that he lived in, but he gained no clue from that, and soon he noticed that quite different winds blew below his wonderful window from those that blew on the other side of the house. In August, the evenings began to grow shorter. This was the very remark that the other employees made to him at the Emporium, so that he almost feared that they suspected his secret and he had much less time for the wonderful window, for lights were few down there, and they blinked out early. One morning late in August, just before he went to business, Mr. Sladden saw a company of pikemen running down the cobbled road towards the gateway of the medieval city. Golden Dragon City, he used to call it, alone in his own mind, but he never spoke of it to anyone. The next thing that he noticed was that the archers were handling round bundles of arrows in addition to the quivers which they wore. Heads were thrust out of windows more than usual. A woman ran out and called some children indoors. A knight rode down the street, and then more pikemen appeared along the walls, and all the jackdaws were in the air. In the street, no troubadour sang. Mr. Sladden took one look along the towers to see that the flags were flying. "'and all the golden dragons were streaming in the wind. "'Then he had to go to business. "'He took a bus back that evening and ran upstairs. "'Nothing seemed to be happening in Golden Dragon City "'except a crowd in the cobbled streets "'that led down to the gateway. "'The archers seemed to be reclining as usual, "'lazily in their towers, "'and then a white flag went down with all its golden dragons.' He did not see at first that all the archers were dead. The crowd was pouring towards him, towards the precipitous wall from which he looked. Men with a white flag covered with golden dragons were moving backwards, slowly. Men with another flag were pressing them, a flag on which there was one huge red bear. Another banner went down upon a tower. Then he saw it all. The golden dragons were being beaten, his little golden dragons. The men of the bear were coming under the window. Whatever he threw from that height would fall with terrific force. Fire irons, coal, his clock, whatever he had, he would fight for his little golden dragons yet. A flame broke out from one of the towers and licked the feet of a reclining archer. He did not stir and now the alien standard was out of sight directly underneath. Mr. Sladden broke the panes of the wonderful window and wrenched away with a poker the lead that held them. Just as the glass broke, he saw a banner covered with golden dragons, fluttering still, and then, as he drew back to hurl the poker, there came to him the scent of mysterious spices, and there was nothing there not even the daylight, for behind the fragments of the wonderful window was nothing but that small cupboard in which he kept his tea-things. And though Mr. Sladden is older now and knows more of the world and even has a business of his own, he has never been able to buy such another window and has not ever since, either from books or men, heard any rumour at all of golden dragon city end of chapter fourteen epilogue Here the fourteenth episode of the book of wonder endeth and here the relating of the chronicles of little adventures at the edge of the world i take farewell of my readers but it may be we shall even meet again for it is still to be told how the gnomes robbed the fairies and of the vengeance that the fairies took and how even the gods themselves were troubled thereby in their sleep, and how the king of Ul insulted the troubadours, thinking himself safe among his scores of archers and hundreds of halberdiers, and how the troubadours stole to his towers by night, and under his battlements, by the light of the moon, made that king ridiculous for ever in song. But for this I must first return to the edge of the world, Behold, the caravan start. End of The Book of Wonder by Lord Dunsany